Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to Tuesday Home Time with Joan Bartlett on air and online until 6pm. Listening on 8.55am on the analogue, 3CR digital, streaming or podcasting on 3cr.org.au. Lots of choices. But today, preparations for war against China. Is it real or just propaganda? I'll be speaking with Richard Tanter from the Northwest Institute for Security and Sustainability and activist and broadcaster Jacob Gregg. And there's a call to rally this Saturday at 1pm at the State Library. A call for peace, truth not war. Free Julian Assange now. Then to Barathon Vidyapathy, filmmaker and member of the Tamil Refugee Council, speaking about the history of the oppression of Tamils in Sri Lanka since independence. A country profile this month is El Salvador, the smallest country in Central America, with Asha Gillis Lakakis, PhD candidate. Then to the situation in Sri Lanka today for the people of that country through the eyes of a former leader of a mass liberation movement in the 1970s and 80s, Lionel Bopajan. But let's not forget Mr Kevin Healy with his week that was. A week, Jan, listener, when brickbats to, I hate to do this, but I feel I must, brickbats to this radio station for its biased coverage of International Women's Day, continually referring to it as International Working Women's Day when the mainstream media, the sensible, balanced, objective media like Lord Rupert of Wapping got it spot on. International Non-Working Women's Day, and okay, okay, it may have emanated from a few women in a sweatshop getting a bit upset over their wages and conditions, or, or lack of, but that was long ago, as Hoagie Carmichael wrote. The world has moved on, sweatshops have moved on, it's time 3CR moved on. Follow the example of, say, the True Blue Capitalist Review, which produced a beautiful lift-out sponsored by Sydney's prestigious Pimble Ladies College, the Review itself, and WB for Women on Boards. Explaining equality means women on boards, women as caring employers, women as bosses, bosses of sweatshops, for instance, or of responsible companies that obtain their merchandise from sweatshops, and an important, incisive article with three pimble ladies informing us what strategies they'd use in the workplace when you become a leader. See, it's assumed that a pimble lady will become a leader of industry, of commerce, of business, of things that matter. And another 16-page insert highlighting the women rising stars of capitalism, while the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin also celebrated the day with a lift-out Power 100, the most influential women in Trublawazi sport, with a feature article from Katie Page, CEO of Harbour Your Money Norman, partner, of course, of the ever-happy Jerry Harbour Your Money, who they tell us, Katie that is, 
is a major supporter of sport, and yes, she sure is, with big investments raking in trillions. Goodness, it just happens that the ubiquitous advertiser Harbour Your Money Norman sponsored the lift-out, and what do you know, Katie turns up at number three most influential woman in sport. And at number nine, among those super fit athletes training hour after hour to reach peak performance, that fitness fanatic and truly was his richest filthy rich of the filthy rich, Gina. Number nine, sport. Apparently she throws a few crumbs of her super duper obscene filthy wealth at uh, a few sports just to show what a warm-hearted, caring employer she is. So 3CR, stop spoiling a great day, International Capitalist Women's Day. The responsible media never resorted to the words working women, nor to explain its origins, because, well, they're happy to appropriate the day, but for goodness sake, there's no profit in working women. Just lots of profit from the work of working women, which is not the same thing. One thing is certain, inadvertence. Caring employers inadvertently underpaying workers. It's always inadvertent, revealing yet again the difficulty poor caring employers face comprehending caring employment conditions. And yet the cruel, heartless, unsympathetic, evil unions such as the Tertiary Education Union, whose members are owed millions, claim underpayment is, how's this for nonsense, is part of the caring employers business model. And then a rarity, a good, good union, the Shopping the Workers Association, see it as shoes, the union appellation, comes under attack from the federal court bench, which told it Rip Van Winkle could have seen workers at McDonald's salt, fat and sugar were being ripped off. <coughs> sorry, sorry, my mistake. Being inadvertently underpaid, as the union opposes a case against McDonald's led by the rival Evil Evil, Retail and fast food union. See, union, maverick. That shows it's evil just because the Good Good Association took up the case months after the claim was lodged, but now wants the court to rule in its favour. And to think the evil union claims the association has long shown more concern for the major retailers than for its own members. Oh, and one other thing is certain. If a caring employer ever did overpay a worker, okay, okay, this is hypothetical, ever did overpay a worker, it would be inadvertent. To prove their sincerity in addressing climate change, if there is such a thing, the great fossil behemoths invited us all to climb into a huge tub of green water. Here, they looked very pleased with themselves. Scrub your back with this handing us a huge lump of coal, just like the one former big supremo, well, as we since discovered, minister for just about everything, scuttled them more lashes on, a.k.a. scummo, waved in Parliament, ordering us not to be afraid. Coal, our friend. And here's some oil to massage your body. Oh, oh thank you. What, what perfume is it? Actually, it's sump oil, but it'll do the trick. It stinks. That's the smell of money. Oh, and if the water gets a bit cold, just turn on the gas. There's plenty where that came from. As a transition, you understand. Um, yeah, to, to renewable energy, of course. Watch your language. To coal and gas and oil. We are committed to transitioning from coal and gas and oil to coal and gas and oil. 
And to think there are people, long-haired, commie, greeny people, who accuse the great behemoths of greenwashing. Like the Troubler-Wazzy Securities and Investments Commission, ASIC, which is sick, all right, accusing giant retail super fund Mercer of, wait for it, of greenwashing just because Mercer attempted to do its bit for the environment by offering a sustainable investment option for those deeply invested to sustainability. It's Sustainability Plus Fund, stating it excluded carbon-intensive fossil fuel companies and alcohol producers and gambling outlets. So obviously there must be a simple explanation for why the Sustainability Plus Fund invested in AG Hell to the Planet, BHP for bloody huge profits, bloody huge polluter, Glen Rotten to the core and White Profits are Heaven Coal, along with numerous alcohol companies and the Crook Casino and Tabcor. It can offer its simple explanation when it hits court as Mercer has the honour of being the first fund charged with greenwashing. One obvious explanation is Mercer doesn't consider the world's great fossil behemoths of being carbon-intensive fossils, just a little bit intensive. And its investment team obviously didn't recognise by their names that those other investments were alcohol and gambling corporations, a simple little mistake anyone can make particularly investment teams um, and particularly professional investors. Interesting aside, few years ago, staff and students at Melbourne campaigned for the uni to stop investing in the fossil industry and eventually the board agreed to conduct its investments through a fund committed to not investing in carbon-intensive fossils. And yep, you guessed it, good old Mercer, making life worse for Mother Earth. Moment of great pride for we Troublawazis as His Most Gracious Majesty's Home Country Government, our mother country, praised us while adopting one of our great humane policies. Turning back no proper papers, queue-jumping illegal boat people and dumping any who land on its shores in some remote spot far from the persecution they are fleeing. With this legislation, we can now be as cruel as our Antipodean colony for its fine array of ministers for concentration camps, razor wire and sink the boats. Big Supremo, Rishi soon smacked the poor boasted. Uh, Just one other thing, the Antipodean Big Supremo other thinged. If they refuse to go to where you want to dump them, it's important to lock them up for life in the most remote place you can find. Trubler was he, proudly, cruel and heartless. We sought a comment from the BBC on this matter, but copped a message saying no one was working and referring us to Rishi soon smacked the poor for an unbiased opinion. In the world of spiralling costs of living, a constant mathematical equation goes, the more we try to conserve energy or water, our bills increase in the same proportion. Use as little water or energy as possible and bang, the bill soars proportionately. But good news. Enclosed in my latest water bill, the company tells us it surveyed customers asking what matters and arising out of, for a start, it announced proudly it will now provide safe and pleasant drinking water, reliable water and sewage services, timely response and repair and service and that meets everyone's needs. And I thought, 
for what we pay them, which bit of that needs a customer survey, which bit of that isn't what they should be doing in the first place. And for the future, it tells us, saving water for the future and looking after our natural environment. So obviously, saving water in the environment can wait. Does that mean they're wasting water, not looking after the environment? They don't matter just yet, but they will in the future, sometime. And it's odds on we'll pay for it, proportionately. On that, must check it if added a conducting a survey charge to all the other charges on the bill. Finally, just when we thought the caring business class, hayseed and sheepshit coalition lots would oppose the socialists on everything, heartwarming to see they can reach agreement. Both our Minister for Offensive Trained Killing, Richard Malls, the bad guys, and his predecessor, Constable Peter Duffer, agree that paying trillions to the merchants of death for nuclear-powered nuclear targets is for peace, not war. Like you know, doesn't that warm our hearts, listeners, showing Richard and Constable Duffer know war is peace? Good afternoon. And more of Kevin Healy tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock for City Limits with Friends. Yeah, needs members to survive. By becoming a subscriber, you're helping us to remain fiercely independent and free of commercials and corporate influence. Are you a paid-up subscriber? It's just $40 concession, $80 waged, $150 for a band or organisation, and $300 solidarity. Great value for 24-7 community-owned and community-controlled media. Please become a subscriber member today. Call the station on 03-9419-8377 or sign up online at 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. We've got a common enemy. The same government that locks up these refugees just behind us here at the Park Hotel is the same government that's going for our rights, trying to attack the very limited gains that casuals have. And so when union activists take up the cause of refugees amongst their fellow workers, it's not an act of charity. It's about building workers' united self-defence mechanism, understanding that we're all part of the same battle. You're listening to Radical Radio on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial, 3CR digital and podcasting and streaming on 3cr.org.au. When I found a food not bombs fly on the road, I had like this feast with a carrot, and carrots are my favorite vegetable. Yeah, I think they were asking for help doing stuff, and I got in touch. Mm. We 
I guess, rescue food. That would otherwise go to waste. I like the aspect of sharing food and um, not making anyone feel obligated to pay anything for it. We make a real point at Food Not Bombs of involving everyone who wants to be involved in whichever part they want to be involved in. For more information, go to fnbmelb.noblogs.org. Food Not Bombs is a 3CR supporter. We're talking today about Australian filmmaker David Bradbury's latest film, The Road to War, with Richard Tanter from the Nautilus Institute for Security and Sustainability. Richard, the title doesn't spell out that the road to war leads to China. I suppose it doesn't have to. When you look at the situation regarding the US and its allies and the propaganda war that's waging, as you wrote, prepping for a China war, ever goading China into war. I'm wondering how long ago the film was made as the situation seems to deteriorate week by week. I first had contact with David about on this issue about September, October last year, and he was already working astonishingly quickly at that point. So I'm not sure how much preparation he had, but he was really moving really very quickly, getting together a list of very impressive people he wanted to interview. Because by September, October, we were really already facing you know, a, a real warning about this, not only the submarines, obviously, a year earlier, but particularly in the Four Corners revelations about the B-52s to be based at uh, Rathkindle near Catherine. I think that really made him move uh, very quickly. And, of course, one of those impressive people is you. What was your contribution? Well, I'm actually not sure what, the, what it's going to be. Uh, you, you never quite know what's going to end up on the cutting room floor and there are a lot of other people. We talked for a very long time and he recorded a lot of material. He was a very interested in a wide range of issues. So uh, until I see the final product, I can't really answer that question. <laughs> And what about the other people? Do you know who they are? Well, I have some idea uh, that uh, certainly I know that John Lander, a former DSAT ambassador to China, and I believe to Iran, uh, is in it. Sue Wareham, my colleague from ICANN and Australians for War Powers Reform, is in it. She's done extraordinary work both on that issue of war powers and on the disgraceful behaviour of the Australian War Memorial. On the other hand, I know David interviewed a number of other people, but I, I guess I'll get a surprise when I see what's in the film uh, on Wednesday night. So you really have no idea what he's going to include from what you told him? No, I don't. And that's, you know, uh, I don't, not any criticism of David. I mean, you just n- never know what the editing is going to do. We cover a very wide range of issues to do with our preparations for war about China, the nature of the alliance, it's the way it's become very hardwired, the role of bases like Pine Gap and Tyndall and Northwest Cape. What of all that he would have selected to go in, well, we're in the hands of the filmmaker. Could you imagine a few years ago that we would get to the situation we're in now? It's really come as a great shock how quickly things have moved, both on the American side of things and on the Australian. 
you know, we know that the Americans have basically made a, a pretty much final decision about, at the very least, ring-fencing China uh, technologically. We know, particularly after the war in, in Ukraine, the Russian invasion, the really the, the ramping up of the motif, if you like, but if you like the three-part motif on the American side, you know, Putin equals G, Russia equals China, um, Ukraine equals Taiwan. None of that is true for everything we know about Mr. Mr. Putin, and when things we know about China, this is completely ideological in that sense of mystifying how we think. And I've been shocked by the speed with which, on the one hand, the Australian media have taken that up, most notoriously uh, the Channel 9 papers uh, in the last week. And unfortunately, the way the Albanese government, virtually from its first week when our Prime Minister attended for the first, first time for Australian Prime Minister, attended a NATO summit, the North Atlantic Treaty Organisation summit, uh, in Brussels, showing the degree of our integration into American planning. And in particular, the way, unfortunately, despite some very good developments in Australian diplomacy by Foreign Minister Penny Wong, as far as I can see, the government on China policy is being led through Minister for Defence Richard Miles from Washington, essentially. Um, and unfortunately, Prime Minister Albanese appears to have gone along with that. And that's profoundly shocking, I have to say, particularly in the case of Mr Albanese, who's been a firm supporter, for example, of uh, Australia signing and ratifying the Nuclear Ban Treaty. Uh, that's, there are multiple shocks here. And I guess the last shock is I spend far too much of my time looking at matters of nuclear war and preparations for nuclear war in particular. But there seems to be a, a blithe assumption that that this is somehow going to have good outcomes for all concerned and is profoundly dangerous. So you don't believe that these so-called leaders have a proper idea of the consequences that can occur if we keep on going on this path? Look, I don't know any of them personally. <clears throat> My impression always of... Uh, Penny Wong has been somebody of a very serious person, but my general impression is that she's rather excluded from many of these decisions uh, about submarines and B-52s and our decision about China. I have no real sense of Richard Miles, but my impressions and experiences dealing with many politicians over many years and government ministers Many of them do not have a good grasp of these matters. Uh, Malcolm Fraser, who I've worked with closely in the last five years of his life, was deeply opposed to any Australian involvement in nuclear weapons and deeply opposed to nuclear war. But I'd have to say Malcolm had a pretty limited understanding originally of what Pine Gap's relationship to all this stuff was. And the point being... I think these people don't have much time to find stuff out. I think a lot of them are experts in what the psychologists would call denial, um, averting your eyes to the horrific consequences, and, if you like, a bias of optimism, 
well, things will work as advertised and uh, it won't come to that, which is always the mantra about nuclear war. Deterrence will stop it happening. Well, it may or it may not. We know David Bradbury is a very important filmmaker. The films he's made over many, many years have exposed many wrongdoings, what actually is happening in the world. We need this film to be shown not just one night at the Nova. I really completely and wholeheartedly agree with this. Firstly, David is a remarkable filmmaker. We owe him a great deal, not least for this, um, this most recent film. On the other hand, the position of independent filmmakers, in other words, people who don't produce you know, what some filmmakers call industrial-type documentaries for, um, for television, they have a really hard time getting the word out. And so this is a one-off showing in Melbourne, or at least the first one-off showing in Melbourne, and I hope that many people will come to that showing, and I hope that there will then be pressure on NOVA to show it more often, and then I hope that there will be enough pressure on the remnants of independent uh, or support for independent media in uh, SBS and the ABC for demand for it to be shown there. So I think it's really important for people to make the effort to come and see this film, or at least there may not be many occasions to see it, and we need every effort possible to get the word out there. Well... The doomsday clock is 10 seconds to midnight. That's scary enough, isn't it? It is, and that's not something which is you know, trivial, that the, the people at the Bulletin of, of uh, Atomic Scientists think very carefully about this. And I suppose it's really important to think about some of the, the language and the ways that we talk about this. Anyone who read The Age in the last week can't help but have been thinking that former Prime Minister Paul Keating's response to the, these articles as warmongering is absolutely right. It's one thing if you ask somebody who is well-versed in strategic studies, do you think the risks are rising? It's another to talk about it in a way which, because of the position that you're in, helps to create a self-fulfilling prophecy. I think that the bulletin of Thomas scientists' point about moving uh, the clock to 10 seconds to midnight came particularly after the risks uh, that were revealed by President Putin's actions in Ukraine in two respects, usually waiving the, if you like, the scarecrow of the threat of use of tactical nuclear weapons, well, that would be all right, wouldn't it? They're only small, they're only yield. Who cares about Ukraine? They're low yield, I should say, uh, would be the mentality there. Of course, breaking that taboo on nuclear use since 1945. On the other hand, the really high-risk actions of artillery barrages at Ukrainian nuclear power plants. Because, of course, if you break the container or break the coolant systems, at a nuclear power plant, you have Chernobyl. So that's the background against which the bulletin tank scientists, genuine experts in these matters, raise their point about strategic risk, saying, beware, this is very serious. All sides need to be careful. That's rather different from the kind of warmongering that the articles, mainly by Peter Harcher and Matthew Knott, put out by um, The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald, the Channel 9 newspapers, in the last week. It's important to see a film like this, Richard. 
and not to go away absolutely depressed, but determined to do something about it. I'm very much hoping that uh, the uh, IPAN, Independent Peaceful Australia Network, demonstration um, on the 18th uh, in Melbourne uh, will be a t- an occasion for people to come out and make precisely that point. Uh, I've been really encouraged by the way that IPAN has grown over the last 10 years into a genuine national organisation uh, with a lot of, uh, I have to say this as a, an old grey-haired person, a lot of people I don't know, which is a wonderful thing. IPAN produced an, a really, and took a really difficult exercise of people's inquiry into the Australian-American alliance and produced what I think was a really quite remarkable uh, report. It's very hard to do that. We have something like 300 submissions. But it's a really remarkable um, state of the alliance uh, report shared by Kelly Tranter uh, about a year ago. And I think that indicates that there is some reason to hope, not only you know, filmmakers like uh, David Bradbury producing what I expect is going to be a very remarkable a statement about the dangers of the current uh, situation, but really organising around the country, uh, including up in, in Darwin, where it's very difficult to organise in these matters, we are beginning to get a return to a proper national peace coalition and IPAN, sorry, IPAN, Independent Peace Australia Network, is a leading part and a very good representative body in that respect. So... We need to go to films like this. We need more films like this. We need more research, not just by academics or by um, people, especially experts, if you like, but getting that translated into accessible uh, formats so people can make their own balanced judgments about what's really going on. And the last thing I'd say is the peace movement needs to think very carefully about how it approaches the question of China, because that's very obviously at the centre of both American and Australian government thinking. And one of the worst things that's happened in Australia in the last four or five years, both under, under Conservative and Labor governments, has been a tightening of so-called foreign influence legislation, which now for Australian uh, researchers, Australian academic teachers, um, to work with Chinese colleagues without running foul of very serious security laws. So that means a peace movement needs to think about how is it going to, A, think about China strategically, and B, how is it actually going to relate to Chinese people? When do we hear Chinese voices other than a few state official spokespeople in the Australian media? Do Australian peace movements have any relationship to Chinese civil society uh, actors? That's very hard in China, obviously. Spies abound, but that's not the only place where that's true. And we need to think about how we're going to give voice to what I suspect are a range of Chinese opinions, and we need to know about that. And I'm sure the people who attend the film will have an opportunity to talk to David after the showing. They will. There's a question and answer, and um, it's a filmmaker's presentation, so David's definitely going to be there talking about the film. There are uh, a couple of other people speaking. I'll be there briefly. Uh, John Lander will will be there, and I think there are some other speakers as well. So it's a chance, I think, firstly, most importantly, to meet the filmmaker, 
and then secondly to talk to some of the people who, who are in the film. And need to book? Yes, um, you will need to book. Uh, you can book online, and I believe Mishy is going to put it up on its website, um, those booking links at the NOVA. Otherwise, if you haven't booked online, I'd urge you to get there by about 10 past 6 on Wednesday, the 22nd. I haven't tested the online booking myself, so I'm not sure I can recommend it completely, but it looks all right. But in case, get there early. Thank you very much, Richard. Thanks for having me. I've been speaking with Richard Tanter from the Nautilus Institute. Now to Jacob Gregg, activist and broadcaster about a call for peace and truce, not war. And it's an important meeting coming up next Saturday. It is. Well, it's um, at the moment, as we've seen in the Western media, uh, in the mainstream media, we're um, preparing for war. Time the peace movement got together and um, let its voice be loud and clear that they don't want to get involved in a war with China or anyone else. But it seems to come on really quickly. What's your assessment of what actually they might be thinking? You can't beat China in a war. No, and I don't think it's about beating China in a war. I think what it's about is redirecting our whole economy onto a war footing. The economy is has gone down the drain. We all know that. There's all, all the talk in the, amongst our friends about how tough life is at the moment. There are layoffs. People are losing their houses. People are getting thrown out of their out of their rentals. This would be unacceptable, and it is unacceptable. But it's a way of the government dealing with that is saying, listen, we're on the or the not the government, the state, saying, look, we're on a war footing. We're preparing for war sacrifices need to be made. And that's basically what, when you look at the Nine Entertainments series of articles this week, that's what, what they were saying was, we need to make sacrifices to retool our economy to be prepared to fight a war with China. Well, we might fight a war with China, but um, we're not going to win a war with China, you're quite right. So why do it? We have a situation like, one of the things that we, we don't talk about when we're talking about this potential threat with China, and there is a there is a potential threat for a war with China, but that potential threat is not coming from China; it's coming from U.S. belligerents towards China. Suppose there is some confrontation, however limited, between the U.S. and China over, say, the Taiwan Straits or the South China Sea. There are some people, and even people who were, you know, the main people from the left, supposedly, the soft left or the, the peacenik community, saying Australia should take an independent foreign policy between China and the U.S. And I'm saying that that's impossible. We have a situation where of the top 20 companies on the Australian Stock Exchange, and the top 20 companies account for 50% of the actual Stock Exchange and market capitalisation. So half the finance in Australia is based in top 20 companies on the ASX, which includes the four banks. Now, they're majority owned by US capital. 15 of the top 20 are owned by at least 60%. 60% owned by US capital. Of the other five, US capital has significant minority ownership, and there's European and other hedge funds that make up the rest of the to take it over 50%. Australian ownership is a minority. So that says to me that when we're talking about our exports to China, we're talking about selling resources that are owned by Western capital 
to China. So if there's a war, which is Western capital, and I like to talk about the capital blocks. I've been saying for years that it's not countries, it's capital blocks. We're looking at selling Western-owned goods to China. Now, if we go into war with China, China will, of course, not buy goods from Australia, which are Western-owned goods. If we don't go into war with China, if we start to take an independent foreign policy, we'll have the tweaking of market forces to ensure that Australia follows the Western capital slash US line. What we're seeing here in the potential of a war between the US and China is almost an admission that Australia isn't even a sovereign country, that we have no option but to follow the US Western capital line. So if there is a war between the US and China, Australia will be involved. That's the part that worries me. Not that Australia can win a war with China or lose a war with China or go to war with China, but that will be involved whether we like it or not in any US-China conflict. And that's what this is setting us up for. Every one of those commentators in the Nine Entertainment's articles spoke about how Australia would necessarily choose to go with the United States. It's nothing about choice. It's about we don't have an option. And you look at the impact on Australia's soil of a war with China if it did happen. Oh, it'd be disastrous. I mean, the Chinese have already said quite openly, and I'm not on China's side on this by any stretch of the imagination. I'm on nobody's side. But China has said quite openly that if Australia got involved in a war on the United States side, it would attack military assets in Australia. It said that quite openly. That Now, when we say that, people think of Pine Gap, but it's not only Pine Gap. You've got the Harold Holt Naval Base near Exmouth on Northwest Cape, troops stationed in WA with the submarine base, troops all over Darwin. You've got communication satellites. You've got Jindalese. You've got all kinds of other communications, ground stations dotted around Australia. These would become legitimate military targets, not just the environmental impacts, the environmental, the economic, the cultural and the human impacts of a war with China, they're too big to talk about. So what do you think is going to happen when Albanese goes to the United States? Well, I think what they're going to do is make more AUKUS announcements. They might make an announcement on where they're up to with the submarines and then I'm not going to change my line from the start that Australia will get at least two to start with, Virginia-class submarines, probably the two that are currently docked in Guam that are just being refitted with new um, lifetime battery packs. They might go as far as five, like some of the commentators are saying, but I think we'll get two to start with. Talk about a joint build between uh, Australia and the UK for submarines with US weaponries to come online sometime around 2060s based on the astute class of the British Navy. That's the announcement, I think, is gonna, that's going to come out. What's planned for next Saturday, taking into account all that you've just said? It's hard to say because I've been, um, unfortunately, out in the bush this week, needing to be. To, I had some stuff I needed to out our bush. Remembering 20 years ago last month, we had that big peace rally that you were at, that I was at, the biggest rally there's ever been seen in Australia. And it's been concerning a few of us that nothing is being done, that political political landscape has changed so much that it's no longer even possible to get up that kind of mass rally. What they're doing is put together a rally, starting at the State Library, 
with basically peace movement speakers, people like Richard Tanter, Dave Sweeney, and talking about the the line of an independent foreign policy and how we achieve that in Australia, and then moving down to Treasury Gardens, where there'll be more of a focus on telling the truth and whistleblowing, where we've got people like David McBride speaking and Peter Wish Wilson about Julian Assange's fate. What we want to do is get people back out on the streets again. COVID events of the last couple of years sent people at home, and it's taken a while to get people to realise that it is safe, they can come back out onto the streets. And this is important, also very important for Julia at this time. Absolutely, and there was a another Belmarsh Tribunal put together by Progressive International last Saturday night. A whole lot of people come out. Now, part of it is a little bit, what can we do? We hear talking heads, we hear experts in law and philosophy and and um, secrecy and privacy and intelligence and communications telling us everything about what WikiLeaks did and why holding Julian in Belmars is a crime. It is illegal, it is a crime. And part of me, I guess, rebels and says, we know that. The other thing we need to do is put the pressure on Anthony Albanese when he's in there with Joe Biden. Now, Anthony Albanese personally supports the call to bring Julian home. I believe that. I believe in his heart he knows that's right. Do you believe in a sense he's out of his depth? Any Australian Prime Minister is out of their depth. The Australian government really has no option, no decision-making power in international relations. We are tied in with the United States. So regardless of what Anthony may personally believe about a war with China or about bringing Julian home or about the current retooling of our whole economy towards an imaginary war or a possible war, um, I don't think he can do anything about it. I think he's feeling, oh, geez, what can I do? I, I can fluff around the edges with superannuation. I can fluff around the edges with a whole lot of um, social security issues. I can fluff around the edges on it, on environment. I can try to make some grand statement about some meaningless thing I'm calling the voice. I think any Australian Prime Minister, not just Anthony Albanese, would realise that they have absolutely no power in the things that matter. If he went to Britain and, or got on the phone to the Prime Minister of Britain and said, we need Julian home, this is one time where I'd like to, very much like to be proven wrong. But I think that if the world then sees that it's not just ex-leaders, it's not just foreign leaders, it's not just experts in law and communications and intelligence that are saying the treatment of Julian Assange is a tragedy and it needs to end, a travesty, I've got to say, that needs to end, that we have the democratically elected Prime Minister of Australia Julian's Prime Minister, actually saying on the world stage, enough's enough, mate, let him come home. I think it would be very, very hard then for the United States and Britain to keep him. All those people that went out on the streets 20 years ago, it's time to do it again. It's time to do it again. I'm not expecting to get the 200,000, whatever it was we had 20 years ago, but what I am hoping is that some of those people, some of the ones who are our age, and also some of our kids. I mean, my kids, um, I'm sitting here in Tilbury watching three, four-year-old kids walking down the road. That's how old my kids were when that rally was happening. And now they'll be at the rally 
as their own human beings. And there are thousands of kids there. I'm hoping those kids come back out who are now in their late, who are now in their early twenties and late mid twenties start the process again of calling for an independent and peaceful Australia and demanding the government do what it needs to do to make that a possibility. Thanks, Jacob. No worries, Jan. And in Melbourne, the rally begins at 1pm next Saturday at the State Library. The US and the UK under AUKUS are pushing Australia into another imperialist war. At the same time, whistleblowers who expose war crimes are jailed. Come to the rally and march for peace, truth, not war. 18th of March, beginning at 1pm State Library, marching to Treasury Gardens. Help build a people's movement for peace. No AUKUS Roundtable is a 3CR supporter. FreeCR is Radical Radio. Through our on-air content and community structure, we promote real change for workers' rights, gender equality, environmental action, disability justice, and on racism and First Nations sovereignty. Do you want to be part of real radical change? We need you to subscribe. It's just $40 concession, $80 waged, $150 for a band or organisation, and $300 solidarity. Call 03-9419-8377. That's 9419-8377. Or subscribe online at 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. Protests were held in Melbourne and Sydney last month, marking the 75th anniversary of Tamil Oppression Day, organised by the Tamil Refugee Council. I spoke with a member of the council, Marathon Vidyapathi, and asked him first what was happening in Sri Lanka, particularly the Tamil areas, the Tamil homelands, that resulted in the name of Tamil Oppression Day also known as Sri Lanka's Independence Day. Did the departing British set the groundwork for the problems that you now face in Sri Lanka? Sri Lanka was actually yeah, first colonised by um, the Dutch and then the Portuguese. And when they colonised uh, Sri Lanka, they had the, you know, the Singhala and Tamil kingdoms respectively. They were governed separately. They were you know, allowed their own kind of state formation as they say. Um, but when the British, you know, took over from them, you know, defeated uh, the Portuguese and then, you know, took over, uh, you know, from one oppressor to another, they decided to do something different, which was they made uh, a unitary structure, which meant that basically they had a government for the entire island rather than just governing the, um, you know, two distinct kind of kingdoms by themselves. So that's where you could see, like, it's the start of it kind of sets the groundwork for like when independence is achieved uh, or when they actually eventually do leave, like what um, are some of the issues faced in that way? Because consolidating um, those two separate kingdoms, which had like obviously diverse cultures within them, but that's the way that people are allowed to kind of, you know, have sovereignty um, and have kind of peace in their own kingdom. 
is, you know, obviously if they, you know, they have their own state structure, they're able to function autonomously. But, yeah, when the British left, that combined structure was still in place. So um, that's why, you know, the majority Sinhalese of the island, they took up the, the control of the government, and that included all the Tamil, Tamil areas, despite Tamils, you know, having um, the right to their own homeland. And yeah, and so it's through through that that kind of sets the groundwork for obviously uh, a lot of like you know fascism and chauvinism to arrive from the majority group when um, you know the minorities are or like you know Tamils are majority in their own homeland, but are considered minorities um, overall population wise. So yeah, when people are fighting for their rights or asking for the right to self determination, the right to kind of govern themselves. That's why that 70% t- take issue with that, or at least the government do anyway, because, uh, you know, they prefer control of the whole island. They don't necessarily want to cede control. And how long was it after Sri Lankan Independence Day that the Sinhalese showed their true colours? I would say it's pretty soon after that, because, well, yeah, one of the first acts they did was the Citizenship Act, and um, that disenfranchised about a million Tamil workers. Uh, these were Tamil workers that were brought up from the southern part of India, they're called uh, upcountry Tamils, like that's the name given to them, um, and they were basically used as like you know indentured servants and um, further marginalised workers than a lot of the Tamils um, who were born in Sri Lanka. Sorry, trace their ancestry back a little bit, but yeah, so over a million Tamils instantly, you know, one of the, in that same year that independence was achieved, they disenfranchised them, you know. They weren't considered citizens anymore, and so that's I think that's pretty indicative of. Um, the colours of the government, because by ostracising a you know significant number of people, um, that obviously disallows them of uh, a lot of rights that the government owes them, and obviously leaves them open to um, further exploitation, which is what happened as well. Did that apply to other minority groups as well? It didn't apply to any others at that stage. How long did this go on, and can you explain how it actually impacted on the Tamil communities and before they started to fight back against what they see, what they saw as the oppression. Yeah, there's a few other um, important things, um, sorry, acts or um, that the government did. There was a Sinhala Only Act um, that was a law that was passed in 1956. That's where they designated uh, Sinhala as, you know, the national language or the only official language. Yeah, despite obviously a significant number of the population um, speaking Tamil. Um, and so that instantly kind of put a lot of people out of jobs as it, and then obviously denied them uh, access or opportunity to get certain government roles because, you know, they were singled out by language. And, um, you know, if you're doing that already, then it, it obviously cuts off a significant amount of people, maybe people that don't have the, you know, the time or access to learn a second language or have never known that language. And so it only... Uh, it only allows a certain, a very specific amount of um, Tamils who who can learn that language to even attempt to be uh, admitted into like higher levels of government. So it's obviously a concerted effort to you know, you know to block off like the education and um, the the social standing of Tamils and kind of um, maintain the majority Sinhalese people in government. And yeah, and, and yes, that applied to education as well. And then that's why they're also. Oh, that's combined with how they were um, taking Tamil lands as well, um, you know, further settling, displacing people from their bits of land under the guise of Sinhala um, cultural preservation. Uh, that's one of the big things that they, they do. They often say that um, these are historically 
Singular um, lands, or they'll say that um, this is dictated in the um, uh, in like Buddhist texts as being like a significant religious cultural piece of land, uh, and so under the guise of that, they displace people from the land, saying that um, this is for cultural preservation, and that tactic actually uh, reaches through till today. Was there also a blockage on certain employment that Tamils could have? There was. I'm trying to recall um, what the specific things are, but um, yeah, for, for my knowledge, it's yeah mostly the the language which really um, kind of kept, which is like more of an official thing, um, that kind of barred people from a lot of access, and obviously there's just general um, discrimination in general, which would kind of allow them the kind of opportunity to pick and choose who they who they thought would fit best, I guess, or would kind of suit their needs. How long was it before? the Tamils started to fight back against this discrimination? The protests were going since independence, um, like non-violent protests. When every one of these particular laws was enacted, you know, there was always um, resistance. There was always people uh, marching on the streets, demanding their democratic right to be heard and um, expressing their frustration with the injustices that were going on. But it's only in the, uh, the early 80s that... Um, some militant groups developed, and then after um, uh, a really horrific pogrom, like a mass killing in 1983, which they called Black July, that's when the kind of formal beginning of the Liberation War started and the kind of what's often called a civil war, but yeah, I don't think it should be accurately labelled as a civil war. How did the Sinhalese justify that massacres? Yeah, it's really hard to explain. I'm not quite sure, like, you know, living there, what it would have kind of uh, felt like, but there's just a, a big rhetoric about sovereignty, but you know, kind of uh, you know, morphed into uh, from this really reactionary place, and yeah, combined with like Buddhism, which uh, you know most people would think is a, a non-violent religion, but they kind of twist Buddhism to say that there actually are points at which you can actually be hyper-violent in order to maintain peace, and that's how they kind of square it with some of the very uh, religious people who obviously don't really practice the peaceful teachings of, um, you know, Buddhism, you know, the best it can be is a, a very, um, you know, beautiful and peaceful religion. But often the way that the government kind of talk to people about it, I guess, is that they would say that um, this is our right as um, and they're kind of like impinging on our rights. And um, that these people, they, they maintain that they are the original inhabitants of the land, which um, I don't think is, uh, it's not really well backed up in historical data to say that they were the first. It's kind of like a mishmash of different cultures, but they kind of maintain through thousands of years that they were the first on the island. And so that's always bringing back to like, they feel like Tamils are invaders. And um, that's how they can kind of justify a lot of the um, yeah, hor- horrific crimes that are committed and kind of goading the, the general public to be complicit or even, you know, enact crimes of genocide against people. Was the general world aware of what was going on, particularly in India, so close? Yeah, in India, I would say that a lot of people did know what was going on. The southern state of India is Tamil Nadu, so the majority of people there speak Tamil. There's been a historic like kinship between um, the Tamils there and then the Tamils in Sri Lanka, but obviously Tamil Nadu being part of the bigger state structure in India, there's only so much power that they have or sway to force India, India's like government or you know geopolitical framing. So 
yeah, there's a lot of support that came from, you know, different politicians and people in India. But yeah, I think the overarching government kind of saw, in the end, kind of saw Sri Lanka as like a strategic place. And because Sinhalese made up the majority of the island, they thought that um, they want to placate the Sinhalese and just kind of work with them. Um, and that's why, um, yeah, they kind of contributed negatively or, um, or supported the Sri Lankan government at the expense of um, the Tamil people. Can you explain what happened after those massacres in 1983? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not a, I guess, a historian on that, in that way, so I might not be able to give you a play-by-play. But that's, yeah, where the war as such um, began, went on for about, I think it was like 24 years. There were varying moments of, of peace, which happened in the 2000s. And that was kind of, yeah, the first hope that um, actually things might get better because, yeah, the Sri Lankan government and um, the uh, the Tamil controlled areas in Tamil Elam, um, led by the LTTE, they were kind of on equal footing. And um, there was a chance for peace talks, which uh, the European Union and the UN kind of supported. But, yeah, in the end, I think uh, greater powers prevailed and um, they wanted um, Sri Lanka to actually win that war. They didn't want the Tamils to have sovereignty over their particular parts of the country because of, uh, yeah, there's a few things we could get into, but there's, um, yeah, Trincomalee Harbour, which is a, a key, um, a key harbour that's been noted for over a couple of hundred years about how, uh, well strategically it's placed as a port. And, uh, yeah, a lot of Western countries and Eastern countries as well, uh, would like to, um, have that as a, a, a port, uh, for both uh, shipping, uh, non-military stuff, as well as um, having uh, shipping lanes for um, military personnel as well. In particular, who were those greater powers that prevailed? Well, I would say it was the US, which is a, a really strong you know, bargaining chip in that. Yeah, during the peace process, they continued to support uh, Sri Lanka militarily, despite there being like a moment of peace and kind of where... You know, you'd assume that you didn't want to tip the scales in any way if you wanted to, to maintain peace. But one of the key things they did is one of the talks that they were going to have, um, which was happening in different third countries that happened in Thailand um, and uh, a couple of other countries, that were having peace process talks in different countries so that there was kind of a, you know, they were in a neutral place and they could kind of talk it out and, um, you know, discuss what the peaceful way to move forward is. But then the U.S. organized one talk to be uh, held in the U.S. itself. And uh, the U.S. had categorized the LTT as the Liberation Tigers, who were the, um, the militant force that, um, you know, was fighting for the people of Tamil Elam. Um, they have them designated as a terrorist organization. So by proxy of them calling them a terrorist organization, they didn't allow them in the country. So if they're going to Put peace. To, they're going to say that peace talks need to take place in their hunk, in their country, and they're not going to allow one side to attend. Then it's uh, quite obvious, that, you know, that they made this uh, choice not in the not to facilitate peace talks, but you know, to actually support one side. And so there was continued uh, slights like that about disallowing certain uh, non-government organisations that they perceived as having um, links to, you know, Tamils in general. They didn't want them operating in different parts around the world. Um, they placed sanctions on different organisations and kind of, you know, were hunting around and saying that that wasn't allowed to um, to supply money to NGOs that are working in that area, in those areas, despite them, you know, uh, not being government or not being LTT controlled, but, you know, uh, serving the people through... Uh, food, medicine, you name it, all these different types of um, very uh, 
very lovely, like philanthropic type of things that were kind of um, uh, used to kind of support the people. But the US keenly wanted to kind of um, dampen that at the efforts of supporting the Sri Lankan government. Well, explain what was happening in late 2008, which led up to May 2009. The war was uh, picking up. Um, peace talks um, had obviously faltered. And so there was con- just continued support for the Sri Lankan military. The US, Australia, UK, yeah, they, they uh, would supply different uh, military equipment uh, and training to different um, Sri Lankan military to crush the, the Tamil Tigers and to, yeah, to destroy the livelihoods of a lot of people. Yeah, uh, that's what I perceive as their aim being. But it was just kind of getting from bad to worse because of this influx of, you know, international support for the government of Sri Lanka. In the end, the, the Tamil Tigers couldn't really hold on to many areas. And that led them to be boxed in um, again and again and again. And then leading up to 2009, um, the government started shelling, or they've always been shelling different areas, but um, uh, significantly they told uh, some of the population that were there, civilians, and told them if they wanted to get out safely, there were designated no-fire zones where um, where civilians could go and uh, it wouldn't be shelled. Um, these are where um, yeah, civilians could obviously set up hospitals and uh, different camps uh, for them to um, survive in, given, yeah, if they wanted... If they weren't um, obviously fighting, you know, they wanted to, to get to safety. A lot of them, um, older people, a lot of them children as well. But yeah, it's in these no-fire zones that were yeah designated by the government that were continually shelled as well. Yeah, there were hospitals there clearly marked. There were a number of um, uh, international NGOs that were there in those areas. But despite that, um, the government did shell those areas and it led to a lot of deaths. And that continued while they were um, hammering um, the Tamil Tigers as well. And um, that led to their defeat. They were boxed in. They didn't really have any international support. Not many countries were interested in, in peace or were telling the Sri Lankan government to kind of halt, you know, this this way of, you know, combat that was, you know, very arbitrary and um, didn't matter whether they hurt civilians or uh, combatants. They were just happy to um, ab- obliterate different areas um in the efforts of finally um, crushing the Tamil Tigers. And um, according to several UN reports, I think I think there's about 150,000 Tamils that are at least that are unaccounted for, um, that are presumed dead because of uh, just those couple of months in the, I think it's like three to four months uh, just before May 2009. That's uh, the amount of people that, um, yeah, were killed. And those people that were in power still remain... Um, still remain free. Yeah, it was one of those key uh, government ministers, Mahinda Rajapaksa, and also his brother Gotabaya Rajapaksa. They were the president and the um, defence minister. And last year, during those, um, during the riots and uh, the protests that happened in Sri Lanka, they were actually uh, kind of forced to resign. But they're still free, uh, despite uh, those crimes, as well as the, um, the just general corruption that they've been... Um, uh, accused of uh, contributing to that kind of uh, harmed not just Tamils but uh, also Sinhalese. It's hard to imagine the trauma that the people suffered at that time and the survivors still suffer even 14 years later. Yeah, it's unimagin- <laughs> unmanageable. Yeah, I guess it's a bit 
to be a bit trite for me sometimes as I've not experienced uh, something like that. But speaking to family members, speaking to um, refugees that I've met in the several years I've been organising, yeah, it's it's horrifying what people have been through. Um, they might just tell you a casual story about uh, a family member being killed and or experiencing, you know, mistreatment at the hands of army personnel, you know, really uh, horrific things that, you know, I'm sure, um, yeah, anybody who's listening to this can kind of imagine the, the awful things, the impunity that would reign in, um, yeah, when the government is so hell-bent on kind of uh, destroying a culture like this. But people that are really suffering through the trauma, a lot of them don't have the the latitude or even the kind of economic stability to kind of address these issues, both people that are, um, you know, in Sri Lanka currently or people that are or like Tamil refugees that are currently living in this country. Is it true that the military is now virtually in charge of the Tamil areas to the north and the northeast? Uh, yeah, it's it's still like that today. During the, the war, there were uh, significant checkpoints everywhere. You had to go to and from uh, to get from, you know, the north to the uh, south. And it's still, it's quite heavily militarised. I think they've had to drop some of the over-presence of just uh, checkpoints to kind of give the uh, semblance of kind of uh, democracy working. But yeah, the the kind of security forces are, are more insidious nowadays where they're filming people a lot. That's one of the key things they do is uh, surveillance. They take photos of um, anybody, of like protesters, the people that are kind of uh, standing up for their rights. And uh, yeah, that's continuing to this day that um, I think every weekend I'll see uh, another video of another protest that's going on. And um, yeah, there's heavy repression. There's, you know, they bring out water cannons. They they arrest people for kind of uh, bogus charges and kind of keep them in uh, lockup for a couple of days, trying to um, yeah stop people building up um, more resistance to what the government is doing. Just finally, I'd like you to concentrate on the role of successive Australian governments, not only as you said before in supporting prior to the massacre in 2009, but the role of the Australian government since in barring refugees or assisting in barring refugees to come to Australia and the treatment of the refugees that did manage to get to Australia. Yeah, it's been a pretty uh, bipartisan um, approach uh, since 2009 to support the Sri Lankan government as well as yeah, stop people uh, exercising their legal right to seek asylum. Yeah, you know, it was the Labor Party that um, started offshore detention, which a significant number of Tamils were affected by the rhetoric, you know, by Gillard and then continued, um, yeah, back by right again and then onto Abbott and, um, yeah, all the successive uh, Liberal Prime Ministers that came since then through Operation Sovereign Borders. Yeah, that really hard and fast stance has obviously led to many deaths at sea that haven't been talked about, as well as um, the people kind of incarcerated both offshore um, and onshore uh, has continued. I was quite cynical of uh, what would happen given in the new federal election if Labor had won. And um, I was unfortunately proven right when one of the first things Albanese did was send the Home Affairs Minister Claire O'Neill to visit Sri Lanka. And, um, yeah, she met with several war criminals, uh, credibly accused of war crimes, sorry. Uh, 
and yeah, gave money to a well-known politician who's um, been involved in some pretty horrific crimes, including like child prostitution. Uh, but this uh, government minister, Douglas Devananda, yeah, he was met by Claire O'Neill. Claire O'Neill, um, yeah, on behalf of the Australian government, gave them money to install GPS trackers on fishing boats. And that was uh, supposedly to deter people from taking those boats and seeking asylum in Australia. And so there's that concerted approach to chummy up to the Sri Lankan government to kind of stem the tide of Tamil refugees while also supporting those same regimes that obviously continued the uh, domestic warfare and the conditions that would perpetuate refugees, you know, like because, yeah, Tamils aren't being treated fairly in the country. So, of course, they're going to they're going to flee. Yeah. Continuing on with, I guess, how the refugees here are, are being dealt with. Um, I'm sure, you know, there was that recent announcement to allow 19,000 people on um, tempo protection visas and safe haven visas are a pathway to permanency. But that leaves about 12,000 other refugees, not just Tamils, who are yeah, in limbo, who are in bridging visas that were subject to the uh, heavily criticised fast track system. And, yeah, there's no word from the government about these people being reevaluated, despite them admitting that these uh, the appeal processes were heavily flawed under the coalition government. But, yeah, there's, there's no concerted stance to combat, uh, like rectify these issues and actually grant people permanency. On the one hand, they'll... Um, They'll let certain families, they'll give certain families permanency, like the uh, that is uh, the Murugupan family um, from Biloela. And yeah, you may have noticed as well, there was this uh, recent case, I think it was, I believe it was an Indian family um, with a child that had Down syndrome in WA, and they were at risk of being deported, but the government stepped in and uh, with a ministerial intervention. But on the, yeah, on that one hand, they'll give you know, rightfully so, permanency uh, to these families. But that's kind of like a PR move because uh, at the expense of thousands of other people, they kind of maintain this air of, oh, we're doing good things, while also kind of subjecting, you know, a voiceless 12,000 people that aren't these picturesque families to, yeah, the instability and the anxiety of being deported at any moment to to danger, if not living uh, living uh, the rest of a horrible life uh, in a country that's... Um, yeah, heavily repressive. Obviously, a very difficult role for the Tamil Refugee Council. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess we're trying to, you know, we get a lot of calls from different people in different situations and it's hard to, yeah, it's hard to kind of get a grasp on what the best supports are because we are just a very small organisation and we've got lots of connections. But, you know, without the money to pay for lots of lawyers, and stuff like that, it can often be hard to kind of figure out the path to where we're best placed to help out. And I think that's where our path is, is kind of raising as much attention as possible, as well as connecting the refugees to um, as many resources and people of our community as possible to kind of think of different strategies to get the government to kind of listen to our needs and make sure that, yeah, people are granted permanency and aren't just um, being subjected to more horrors. Thanks very much. Thank you for your time. Appreciate it. Hi, 
I'm Jeffrey. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday, 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua. You're listening to Radical Radio on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial, 3CR digital, and podcasting and streaming on 3cr.org.au. My name's John A. Tate, and I've collected hundreds of songs about footy and sport. So we've put together a program called The Sporting Record. Hang on. It's not all about your records, John A. Em and I are also here to cast a critical 3CR eye over all things sport. Join John, James, and me every Thursday at 4pm for The Sporting Record, right here on 855 3CR. Kicking off on Thursday, August 25th at 4 o'clock. It's now 14 years since the brutal end of the war in Sri Lanka and perhaps will never be known how many Tamils died in May 2009. Estimates range from 40,000 to 100,000 people. But has the ending of the war meant prosperity? as the government describes the present situation, with predictions that the economy will be back in the black by 2026. For an understanding of the true situation in Sri Lanka, I spoke with Lionel Bopajay, who was jailed twice and tortured for his role as a former leader of the mass liberation movement in the 1970s and 1980s. He now lives in political exile in Australia, where he and his family continue to be outspoken defenders of human rights and for social justice. Lionel, it's now seven months since the anti-government protests began in the capital, Colombo. Looking back on the reasons for those protests. There were a couple of reasons. The government of Gotabaya Rajapaksa, which came to power in 2019, they took several measures. Uh, one is to uh, reduce taxes of the small tax base in Sri Lanka. Then they cut down on the fertilizer imports because uh, the country had to pay. They didn't have foreign exchange uh, reserves to pay. And the COVID crisis, as well as the uh, Russia-Ukraine war, created uh, a pretty bad situation. 
uh, which was obviously exacerbated by what they were doing in Sri Lanka. Again, those problems were exacerbated by corruption, mismanagement, and uh, also wastage. Uh, so there were systemic issues that were uh, affecting the economic situation of Sri Lanka. Then there were uh, international factors that were affecting the situation. The economic situation obviously uh, became a major political crisis. People didn't have uh, fuel, uh, medication, cooking gas, electricity cutoffs, you know, that are only a few hours of the day they uh, had electricity and so on. So people were encountering severe difficulties. And because of that situation, uh, irrespective of uh, politics, you know, people came onto the streets, start protesting. That is how the protests came into being. It started in urban areas first, and then it gradually moved on to the other areas, and uh, it became island-wide protest movements. In May 2022, it turned out, uh, it led to a general strike, and uh, from then on, the situation uh, slightly changed because of the issues that arose within the protest movement itself, because uh, until then, the protest movement uh, was not led by a single political entity, or it was said uh, political. And then uh, also there was no leader, particular leader, not led by any leadership. <laughs> there was a bit of anarchy as well. But then uh, all these groups got together and uh, probably had some sort of interactions with each other that led to a strong protest movement uh, like what happened in Middle East. That led to forcing out the previous president, the previous prime minister and the finance minister of their regime to resign. And who replaced them? That is the issue. <laughs> uh, the Rajapaksas were able to appoint, uh, I, I would like to emphasize, that the Rajapaksa clan led political bandwagon. They, they were able to appoint Mr. Ranil Vikramasinghe as president. Mr. Ranil Vikramasinghe was not elected as president by the people. Uh, in fact, he was defeated by the people at the last general elections. Whatever happened with the protests, Previous uh, Rajapaks uh, bandwagons, corrupt, inefficient, and wasteful regime. It continues to mis mismanage Sri Lanka and its economy. I would like to uh, address the current situation in the context of an address President Ranil Lickramasinghe made to Parliament this Wednesday. Uh, President spoke about the hardships ordinary people are faced with. However, he or his regime has not shown any tendency to any action to tighten the belts of those at the helm, whether they are of the political class, the super rich, or the bureaucracy. The tax rates imposed on the monthly income of professionals have made it difficult for them to uh, survive. However, no plans have been made or outlined to make individuals and entities engaged in tax avoidance or money laundering to either pay their dues or bring their money back. Nevertheless, the president announced he would establish a presidential commission to investigate all political parties 
So that's not a good sign. Obviously, this is to target these political opponents, particularly organizations and political parties supporting the just demands of uh, the people. In addition, uh, the president spoke about state intervention in the media industry, including social media or the World Wide Web, using a self-regulatory mechanism, he said. So the future doesn't look so good. It also appears currently the president is encouraging chauvinist groups to stir up chauvinism and communalism. He was talking about devolving power within the unitary state. I think he referred to the 13th Amendment to the Constitution. In the past, most of the regimes and chauvinists, they opposed implementation of the 13th Amendment. That was on the ground that the provincial councils in the North and East would use it for advancing the course of separation. In the meanwhile, Buddhist monks burned down the 13th Amendment during the president's speech itself. The president's attempt appears to make use of this issue to strengthen his frail political position and to push through the IMF-imposed austerity measures. The ruling classes in Sri Lanka, regardless of their color, have used discrimination against the non-majoritarian communities to divide society along ethno-linguistic and religious lines. What the regime should be doing is abolishing the autocracy by repealing the executive presidency, repealing all repressive legislation, including the Prevention of Terrorism Act and the recently enacted Bureau of Rehabilitation Act, releasing of all political prisoners, fully restoring civilian ownership of land and property in the North and East, but they are not trying to do any of those. Lionel, what happened to the just demands of the people in those demonstrations? Their major demand was go to go home, that was their slogan. But uh, it was not limited to sending Gotabe Rajapaksa home. It was more anti-systemic. They wanted the system change. And now uh, the system change has not happened. What has happened is now the system has become uh, more autocratic uh, with the new president, Rani Likramasinghe, exercising more autocratic power that uh, he has received under the executive presidency. The system continues. The demands of the protest movement, they are yet to be achieved. According to the surveys that have been done recently, there is strong support for the demands of the protest movement throughout the island, uh, irrespective of uh, people's background. But then uh, the issue is, if the government is going to hold elections, then what sort of tactics they will use to divert the attention uh, of the people away from the major issue. They are already planning to distribute 10 rations of rice and uh, there are so many other things uh, in the offing. So when these things happen, people uh, tend to become more thinking in the short term and become more opportunistic, thinking individualistically, the situation can change unless there is a strong movement, a united, powerful, reliable a movement that 
people could trust if there is such a movement uh, who could raise the awareness of the people about these issues without in fighting among the forces of the opposition then that would uh, create a better ground for achieving what the people have been struggling for are you saying that the demonstrations have stopped no they are continuing what has happened is uh, there have been many since uh, since ranil wickremesinghe came into power what he did is that uh, he uh, used exorbitant power extraordinary power of the security forces to uh, crush all the protests arrest many people not only the leaders those who have been uh, taking part in protests they, they they were going after them and uh, they were intimidating using the intelligence organizations some of them were kept in jail for a long while like uh, the leaders of the interuniversity students federation uh, they were kept under prevention of terrorism act for some time most of them were uh, released on bail uh, by the court but uh, what has happened is the regime is manipulating the police ordinance um, which is uh, vestige of colonialism and uh, associated legislation to hold the arrested protesters in custody for as long as possible when president uh, addressed the parliament last wednesday uh, he made it clear that his government is not there to be popular it is there to implement unpopular decisions for the sake of the nation he threatened protesters workers other opponents of his regime austerity measures imposed by the imf that his regime is implementing and he stated that no one has the right to create anarchy he said he would use full force to prevent it while he was making this statement there were tens of thousands of workers protesting against the regime socialist measure what happened is the president and his minister for security mobilized the military the police and other armed gangs to attack the protest under ranil wickremesinghe's regime heavily armed military contingents are deployed at all protest sites using hundreds of police with anti-riot squads and water cannons last week for example a peaceful march by the national people's power the jvp uh, affiliated uh, sort of an organization it was attacked uh, by these security contingents one protester was uh, killed another was uh, another is in hospital with serious injuries and many others were injured the day before yesterday protest at the law faculty of the university of kalambu it was organized by the inter university students federation it was attacked and uh, led to the death of a security officer employed by the university university of kalambu what the human rights commission has done under these circumstances they have called the minister for public security tiranales the human rights commission has summoned him to appear before the commission in order to investigate this uh, violent suppression or terror used by the police and security forces during those protests uh, i don't know what would happen because usually they don't uh, appear 
even though there are summons and the human rights commission is an independent commission and they don't have any any sort of power punitive powers the regime states actually the president uh, in his statement said that they accept the people's right to freedom of speech assembly and protest however in the same speech he praised the armed forces and the police while strengthening their repressive powers at the same time president asked trade unions to consider the current economic situation naturally and the regime has asked so and not to disrupt any essential or critical services but they have been also asked to refrain from participating in any activities that could destabilize the economy the regime has demonstrated in practice what it will do if they don't listen they will unleash unprecedented violence and terror on peaceful sit downs protests assemblies and marches so the situation appears to be worsening over time with the regime hellbent on suppressing freedoms for peaceful assembly speech protests and marches and that was part 1 of an interview with Lionel Bopajaj who was a former leader of the mass liberation movement in Sri Lanka in the 1970s and next week we'll continue on with Lionel's story Solidarity Salon, home of Radical Women and Freedom Socialist Party, has moved to Reservoir. We are a socialist, feminist bookshop and organizing center eager to collaborate with a diversity of optimistic rebels. All gender identities welcome. We're at 113 Spring Street Reservoir, near Regent Station. Drop in or get contact details at socialism.com. Solidarity Salon is a proud 3CR supporter. You know, there's people like you said have been on casual for seven years. Well, it's supposed to be casual employment. People want full-time jobs. They don't want to be sitting there casual, not knowing they're going to get any any days, any leave, or what's whatsoever. Especially you look at all the casuals in the, our industry at the moment. They're sitting home. You know, people want full-time employment, and they should they should be entitled to full-time right. employment. And look at all the people who were used and abused as casuals in the aged care sector, and all the problems that are facing people now, and all the deaths that are following. In the meatworks, a lot of that's casuals, labour hire. You know, we've got blokes travelling around. You know, we want full-time positions, and you know that's and people want it. We want to be full-time employed. You want to have your Christmas holidays. You want to have time with your family. But when you're a casual, you get none of that. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. Hi Anne. Mm-hmm. Where else would you hear about progressive economics? Well, you can definitely hear about it on 3CR Radio, Radio MMT between 5:30 and 6:30 p.m. the second and fourth Friday of each month. Radio, Radio MMT. In the country profile for this month, speaking with PhD candidate 
Sasha Achilles Lukakis, we travel to El Salvador in Central America. Sasha, what is your starting point? Yeah, so we're of course talking about El Salvador today, which is the smallest country in Central America, one of the smallest countries in Latin America, um, nestled between Guatemala, Honduras, Nicaragua. It's located on the Pacific coast of Latin America, one of the only countries that only has a Pacific coast. And it's a country that has a really, really sad history, unfortunately. It's full of a lot of bloodshed, conquest, interracial violence, gross inequality. But to start with, to understand how we get there, we of course have to look, as always, before the Europeans arrive and look at the really fascinating, complex indigenous cultures that inhabited what we now know as El Salvador before the Spanish arrived and began their bloody conquest. So in the case of El Salvador, we have two really distinct civilizations form over a couple of thousand years and really become quite prosperous over that time. So we have the Lenca, which are chiefly in the east of the country, and the Pipil uh, in the west of what is today El Salvador. Now, both of these civilizations, the Lenca and the Pipil, are very warlike. They're quite proud warrior civilizations. Um, in fact, the Aztec civilization had actually attempted to conquer and launch sort of preliminary raids into this area and were actually unable to conquer either of these to statelets, nation states, which is really quite remarkable and I think does speak to how powerful and coordinated and self-assertive these civilizations were. And they grew quite rich, chiefly on the trade involving indigo, uh, which was a major crop in El Salvador even before the Europeans arrived, and cacao. And they would trade with the Maya civilizations in southern Mexico and Guatemala. They would trade with the Aztecs as well when they weren't at war. So it was really quite a complex and interconnected and very uh, wealthy uh, set of civilizations that existed in El Salvador prior to the arrival of the Europeans. Now, the Spanish first um, discover, in scare quotes, first discover El Salvador in 1522. And they're led by Pedro de Alvarado. He's one of the key conquistadors that is spearheading this Spanish conquest of the Americas, this penetration of the different areas of Latin America. He, of course, immediately looks to the rich indigo trade and the cacao trade that is going on amongst the Lenca and the Pipil civilizations. And he, of course, wants to conquer it, not only for the Spanish Empire, but, of course, for the personal wealth that he is going to gain from this land as a conquistador. But, as I said, the Lenca and the Pipil are very proud, warlike cultures, and they actually defeat this initial Spanish incursion. It's, it's a bloody incursion, and the Spanish suffer really heavy losses against the Lenca and the Pipil. They actually have to return, the Spanish have to return two years later, in 1524, and they begin a four-year campaign that eventually sees the Lenca and the Pipil subjugated after very high casualties on the side of the Spanish. Unfortunately, the Lenca and the Pipil suffer even higher casualties, and we see this particularly after the introduction of smallpox and other European diseases. Both civilizations are reduced to about 10% of the pre-conquest population. So we see a massive depopulation take place in what is today El Salvador, um, just like in Mexico, just like in Peru with the Inca Empire, wherever the Europeans arrived, there's just a massive genocide committed against the indigenous civilizations. And the Spanish take advantage of the existing indigo trade. They use that to siphon the wealth out of this region. 
Now, interestingly, with El Salvador, there's a bit of an inter-Spanish rivalry. We see this form between Pedro de Alvarado, who's now conquered and laid claim to El Salvador in the name of the Spanish, but of course he has a lot of personal control over this area, and neighbouring Nicaragua, or the Spanish-dominated, um, Spanish-conquered region of Nicaragua, where there are rival conquistadors that are actually looking to annex El Salvador from Pedro de Alvarado. So there's actually a bit of a Spanish civil war between these two rival factions of conquistadors for quite some time. And this actually has quite a significant influence on the way that El Salvador's oligarchy developed. So in El Salvador, a lot more than other parts of Latin America, we see this very violent, opportunistic oligarchy emerge. And ultimately, it's agreed that both areas, Nicaragua and El Salvador, will be put under the control of the Captaincy General of Guatemala. So this is a, a larger sub-region of the Spanish Empire that comprises all of Central America, and that comes into being in 1609. So we actually see about 50, 60 years of inter-Spanish war, civil war between El Salvador and Nicaragua, before finally the Spanish authorities, the colonial authorities, put their foot down and intervene and tell the conquistadors that they need to pull their heads in and unify because it was actually becoming quite a destructive little relationship that was emerging in that part of Central America. After this point, we see a very similar pattern emerge compared to what happens in the rest of Latin America and Central America particularly. We see a lot of indigenous people transported south or north to either the mines in Mexico or in uh, Bolivia and Peru to work as slave labour. So this large depopulation continues in El Salvador. Um, and eventually the indigo crops do not become as profitable. In fact, by the late 1700s, early 1800s, we see um, that there are new chemical replacements that, that indigo as a crop doesn't need to be produced anymore. So it becomes uh, pretty much worthless, really. So it is then switched to coffee and coffee becomes the dominant product of export for this colony. Is it fairly unusual for a country like El Salvador in, in Central America not to have mineral resources? Because we took, talk about all the other countries, the foreigners or the whatever came in and just took over gold, silver, copper, whatever they could find. That's correct. So El Salvador, unlike a lot of the other uh, Central American countries and Mexico, did not and does not have large mineral deposits. Uh, the Spanish had hoped to find a bit of gold in the north of the country. That's what they had been told by some of their indigenous allies, some of the civilizations that had allied to the Spanish. And they did find some small gold mines, but they quickly dried up and compared to any other country in Central America, uh, and particularly, of course, compared to Mexico, these, these mineral deposits may well have not existed. It was a very, very small amount that they gained from that. That's just simply due down to El Salvador's geography. There never were large mineral deposits there. The indigenous civilizations, as I said, did not rely on gold or silver, as was customary in, for example, the Aztec Empire, in the Maya civilization during the Inca Empire, where these minerals were used for quite important ceremonial purposes. Uh, that, that just didn't really exist in El Salvador. So as I said, indigo was the main crop that even the indigenous civilizations used. That was what um, was produced there very easily. And of course, they had the bounty of the Pacific coastline as well, quite large offshore food resources, fish, fish resources, fisheries, things like that. So it, it just evolved that way that it became quite a different sort of colony. Uh, and also as a result, 
it wasn't very rich for very long either because, as I said, once these chemical substitutes for indigo, for that colouring, were developed, El Salvador quickly lost its relevance. And, in fact, it never had heaps of relevance because indigo was still not as important as, for example, sugar or gold or silver or all of these other commodities that other Latin American colonies produced. El Salvador was always not as important as other colonies and it was always a little bit of a backwater. And as I said, the oligarchy in El Salvador was very opportunistic, very violent. They'd been used to these sorts of inter-conquistador rivalries. So they were very, very intolerant of any sort of dissent, very bloodthirsty. And as a result, none of uh, the benefits, the economic benefits of colonial rule were seen by indigenous peoples or even poor Spanish immigrants that had come across from the mainland to Latin America, to El Salvador. It was a very, very depressed region for the majority of the population. And of course, as we as we know, this sort of situation where you have such a large percentage of the population disenfranchised, brutalised, subject to racism, having their land expropriated at a moment's notice by the colonial authorities or simply by conquistadors, by private landlords, feudal landlords, uh, you of course have the stirrings of independence, as you do across Latin America. You have this great sense of injustice and this, this very, very strong feeling that these countries now need to free themselves from European rule. In El Salvador, this begins in 1811, where you have the first independence fighters beginning to organise themselves, and they officially launch their struggle, their independence war against the Spanish elite in El Salvador in 1811. And they are chiefly led, interestingly, by Catholic priests. So this wasn't a rule across Latin America, but in some countries, and particularly in Central America, and we see this develop a bit later, Catholic priests tended to be poorer than in other regions. They were far away from the centres of Catholic power. They were often uh, quite poor themselves. They would roam around these territories, um, you know, offering services, offering prayers, offering charity, things like this to poor regions of the Spanish Empire. And in Central America, a lot of Catholic priests actually grew quite disillusioned with the terrible destitution they saw, the destitution of indigenous peoples, the destitution of um, the small African slave population that was in El Salvador. And they actually were quite important in galvanizing and directing this independent struggle in El Salvador. So there was a very fierce and spirited resistance, as there was across Latin America. And by 1821, uh, we see the Spanish fully expelled from not just from El Salvador, but from across the different Central American territories. And in that same year, 1821, uh, Central America declares itself as an independent region, as an independent state, all of Central America, uh, in Guatemala City. And Guatemala City becomes, just for one year, the capital of this federation of uh, Central American states. Unfortunately, the Spanish are replaced by another empire, for, only for a short period of time. But after the Spanish are expelled, uh, neighbouring Mexico is having its own independence war and, its, and now its own power struggle between different factions, between the liberals and the conservatives. As we know, this was a common trend across Latin America. We often had um, these two factions emerge after the Spanish are expelled. The conservatives who are more aligned with the old Spanish colonial way of running these countries, of former colonies, now countries, and then the liberals which have these more... Uh, more progressive ideas, generally speaking, not always, but these more progressive ideas around education, around healthcare, around foreign policy. And in Mexico, the conservatives 
win out in the early years of this of this post-independence era. And Agustin de Iturbide, who's one of the Mexican independence leaders, but a very conservative and reactionary one, is installed as the emperor of Mexico. He establishes the Mexican Empire, and he absorbs Central America. He says Central America uh, belongs to Mexico. It makes sense that Central America is annexed by Mexico uh, because he believes Mexico has a sort of right to own Central America. And this is not a very popular move in the Central American countries, including El Salvador. There's intermittent struggles against this Mexican empire over 1822 and 1823. Uh, but eventually the liberals in Mexico overthrow Iturbide. They overthrow the Mexican empire and they vote to allow Central America to become its own state. And this is what happens in 1823. And we have the creation of the United Provinces of Central America. Now, we've mentioned this in other in other interviews before, um, when we talked about Nicaragua and Honduras, that the United Provinces of Central America was a very emancipatory project. The idea was to create a strong Central American country that together with all of these different countries, Nicaragua, Honduras, El Salvador, Guatemala, Costa Rica, Panama, all of them together could chart an independent foreign policy and could be strong enough to stand up for their own interests and their own and defend the policies that they implement without being pressured by external forces. And in fact, the first leader of the United Provinces, Francisco de Morazan, um, who's widely credited as being sort of the, the father figure of Central American independence, he himself was born in San Salvador, which is the capital today of El Salvador. So he actually was born in what is now El Salvador, which is which is quite interesting. And he, he was a visionary leader. He introduced universal education, for children, basic universal healthcare, and of course I have to say basic because it really was very rudimentary what was available, but for the first time it was fully uh, free of charge for everyone in Central America, including indigenous people, including former slaves. He championed the secularization of Central America, so separating the church from the state, ensuring that the state's apparatus was what really was able to to implement decisions and make decisions around the economy, around politics, without having the influence or the interference of the Catholic Church and the Vatican. And he charted a strong independent foreign policy for the United Provinces. So he was very much not aligned. He did not like to get involved when the United States tried to intervene, for example, in in Mexico or in the northern part of South America or in the Caribbean. He refused to get involved on the side of the United States, which, you know, was quite a significant decision for a country that was so young and made up of so many different little statelets. And it was really still trying to fortify itself. Now, unfortunately, there were a number of internal and external forces that pressured the United Provinces and that pressured Morazan in particular. So firstly, we have Honduras, Costa Rica and Guatemala attempting to secede from the United Provinces in the late 1820s. Uh, and we now know that at least in the case of Honduras and Costa Rica, the United States was directly involved in financing these efforts at secession. Um, and of course, this was the price that Morazan paid for his independent foreign policy. The United States wanted a subservient Central American government in those United Provinces. And then, unfortunately, Morazan did not do enough to right the wrongs, the historic injustices against indigenous communities in the different parts of Central America. And we have a very large indigenous revolt led by 
an El Salvadoran chieftain, actually, Atino, in 1835, that sweeps across uh, not only El Salvador, but also into Guatemala and Honduras as well. We're, we're seeing the externally financed resistance of some of the members of the United Provinces by the United States. And then on the other hand, there's this internal contradiction of, of you know, the historic injustices and the disaffection of Indigenous peoples that culminates in this revolt in 1835, this domestic Indigenous revolt. And ultimately, unfortunately, Morasan cannot stop this tide and this, the United Provinces collapse. So we see each of these Central American countries secede and El Salvador is actually the last of these countries to leave the United Provinces in 1841. So El Salvador was actually, or, or at least the elite in El Salvador, held out the most hope that this project could work and could provide a framework for, for future policy and future economic decisions in Central America, but ultimately it doesn't work. And in 1841, El Salvador, as we know it today, is born. El Salvador is now independent. It's unfortunately weaker than it's ever been. It does not have the strength of the rest of Central America to support it. And we now see this predatory elite that was emerging in the Spanish colonial era. They, they were subsumed a little bit by the United Provinces. They didn't have as much power when all of these Central American countries are unified. But once El Salvador becomes its own country again, we see this oligarchy rear its head again. They begin a massive program of land expropriation. They, they finance uh, groups of essentially mercenaries to go into indigenous territories and evict indigenous communities from their land to take them to grow coffee. As I said, coffee became the main export um, of El Salvador, and it is to this day. In fact, it is virtually a monoculture still in El Salvador. It is coffee dominates the country's economy. But this oligarchy accumulates land at such a rapid rate that by the 1870s, so only 30 years after El Salvador's independence from the United Provinces, we have 14 families, and they're called Las Catorce, or the 14, literally 14 families, owning 95% of all land and economic production in El Salvador. So we have, this is an obscene level of wealth concentration and land concentration that doesn't even have any parallel in other Latin American countries where we see these oligarchies emerge. In fact, there, there have been, you know, historical comparisons, there have been studies done. No other country comes close to the degree of oligarchic control that was experienced in El Salvador because we, we literally had these 14 elite families, oligarchic families, virtually controlling the entire country. They also formed the first um, or modified the El Salvadoran constitution, the independence era constitution, so that land, these landlords, these families, could select 42 out of the 70 members of parliament. So they always had a supermajority. And there wasn't even a pretense of democracy. These 14 families could just select 42 out of 70 members of parliament. And the others that were remaining, the 30-odd that were remaining, were still selected by wealthy landlords, by these vested interests within the El Salvadoran oligarchy. So it was virtually a feudal dictatorship. That's what was established in El Salvador. And it's very, very interesting that these 14 families continue to run El Salvador's largest businesses today. So, for example, there's Ban Agricola, which is a, a lending bank for agricultural projects for farms. That's owned by one of the 14 families. Banco Salvadoreño is another one. That's the main or the largest private bank in El Salvador. That has the, the largest number of members in the country. 
and that is also owned by one of these original 14 families. So this oligarchy, Lasker Thornton, has more or less morphed into, into a modern capitalist oligarchy. You know, again, we, we haven't seen this same degree of uninterrupted control. We're, we're talking about the exact same people, virtually, continuing to control the country up until today, which is really, really scary. It's remarkable as well. It's it's a really, really incredible historical phenomenon that the oligarchy in El Salvador was able to exert this much control. And of course, the consequences of their rule, of the rule of Las Catorce, are devastating for the vast majority of the population. We see extreme levels of poverty in this era of the late you know, 1800s, early 1900s, exceeding 80% of the population living in extreme poverty. Uh, as I said, the eviction of Indigenous people from their land to expand coffee plantations. This also just included um, these mercenaries going and shooting Indigenous people if they refused to leave their land, and an intense dependence on the United States as an export market. These El Salvadoran coffee plantations plantations were virtually running just to supply the U.S. coffee market. And of course, the U.S. was very, very intimately connected to these 14 oligarchic families. You know, U.S. uh, agribusiness interests were dominating these coffee plantations, all of these uh, commercial agreements that this um, landlord ruled parliament was signing were to the benefit of U.S. corporate interests and U.S. agribusiness interests. And it virtually did become uh, a U.S. neocolony as a lot of Central American countries did at this time. Did they introduce slavery into the coffee or were there enough Indigenous people that they coerced into working the coffee fields? Ever since El Salvador became an independent country in 1841, slavery has, in the constitution, been forbidden. So officially it did not exist after 1841. Um, But what ended up happening on these plantations, essentially we saw them operating like feudal properties, feudal properties of land. So you had impoverished peasants, indigenous people that were working on these large private farms, these large private properties that were just vast coffee plantations, and they were virtually owned by the landlords, uh, by the people who owned these plantations. The, the peasants would um, get themselves to get housing, or if they needed um, you know, medical care, they would have to get it from these landlords. And it, it essentially became debt slavery, and, and a sort of feudal system emerged where these peasants, these indigenous people, were essentially unable to leave their land and virtually had to work for free because they had indebted themselves so much, or because they had become dispossessed and they had no other way of achieving even basic subsistence without working on these properties for virtually no money at all, or in some cases for actually no money, and they would just receive a bit of food or rations, and that was what they had to do to survive. So, you know, in reality, it was a form of slavery. It was, it was feudalism, but officially the El Salvadoran constitution forbid any sort of slavery. But that, that was the sort of situation that emerged. It was a nightmare for, for most people, for the, the vast majority of impoverished Salvadorans. This situation, as in the rest of Latin America, is untenable. You cannot have this degree of exploitation and violence and not expect a reaction. And of course, you know, in the early part of the 20th century, the 1910s, 1920s, we see these waves of intense labour strikes beginning. So we see the the trickling in of Marxist-Leninist communist ideas into parts of the Salvadoran peasantry. We see the formation of farmers' unions who begin to advocate for the rights 
of workers on these vast plantations, and we see large, you know, labour strikes. We see, in some instances, coffee plantations being burnt down by the workers that are working there. Student protests at the University of El Salvador uh, in the capital, and there are also indigenous revolts in rural areas. So the indigenous communities begin actually fighting back quite ferociously against, you know, these mercenary expeditions um, that are attempting to expropriate land. What we see in 1931, or by 1931, the oligarchy is under quite a lot of pressure. Um, they're seeing that, you know, there's mass discontent that these workers' mobilisations, these indigenous mobilisations, are actually threatening their interests now. We're seeing property destroyed. We're seeing their economic gains, their economic bottom end, being affected by this, this chaos and this unrest. So what they do is they finally relinquish control of the parliament and uh, they let elections take place. Now, of course, the only people who can run in these elections are oligarchs. They're the only ones that have the money and the influence to actually uh, get into this office. And we have the the election of Arturo Araujo Fajardo. Now, he's an oligarch as well, but he is quite progressive, at least in some social areas. So, you know, he does actually advocate for, you know, very, very limited reforms to, for example, education and healthcare to allow easier access for low-income people. Um, he's also um, in favour of a very, very limited land redistribution program to actually sort of get rid of some of these tensions that have been caused by the extreme land concentration that took place with the oligarchy owning 95% of everything in El Salvador. But he isn't even given a year in power, in fact, barely six months, and he's overthrown by the military. And the military is, of course, financed by the oligarchy, by the 14 families. You know, even this really, really mild, tepid attempt to begin to address some of the problems in El Salvador is not tolerated by the oligarchy. And this is what I was saying. The oligarchy in El Salvador is really, really quite stuck in its ways, very, very out of touch with reality, um, even compared to a lot of other Latin American oligarchies. You know, at least in other countries, there were periods when the oligarchy was, you know, realised it had to play a bit of a long game to, to maintain its privileges. In El Salvador, this is not the case. They are very, they very much believe they were born to rule. They were born to own this land, and any sort of attempt to threaten that entrenched power and that wealth is not tolerated and was not tolerated. So in 1931, there was a coup, and we have Maximiliano Hernández Martínez, uh, a major general in the army, the El Salvadoran Armed Forces. He takes over and establishes um, martial law and a military dictatorship. Maximiliano Hernández Martínez, he is renowned as being one of the most bloodthirsty dictators in the, in the history of El Salvador and in the history of Latin America. He receives very harsh backlash from uh, these peasant organisations, uh, for example, from the El Salvadoran Communist Party, from these indigenous groups. And, of course, one of the key players in, in these left-wing movements is Farabundo Martí. He's an intellectual. He's a Marxist-Leninist with a, you know, he, he has this very radical vision for El Salvador. He wants to redistribute the land entirely. He wants to break the power of the oligarchy forever. He wants to try an independent foreign policy that is independent on the United States. He wants to implement socialist economic policy to help the poorest people in the country and, of course, and very importantly, empower indigenous communities. So he becomes a, the figurehead of these, you know, all of these left-wing strikes and labour movements and indigenous revolts, and he leads the movement to overthrow the Martinez 
dictatorship. And you've been listening to the first part of our country profile for this month, El Salvador in Central America, with PhD candidate Sasha Gillies-Lukakis. And of course, part two on the program next week. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.